Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 20 of the 1,000 Recordings podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always every week, is the Sultan of Swing, Mitchell Davis. What's up? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> it's going good, man. How have you been? No, pretty good. Just busy, 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 busy. Uh, uh, how was your week? Um, you know, my week was was typical. You know, no, no big news or anything. But well, some potentially cool news. I can't really say anything yet. Per, you know, <laughs> pertaining to the show. No, pertaining to the show. You know the news. Yeah, I, but I we do. gotta. But yeah, it's, 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 it's probably have, good to just keep keeping under wraps for the minute. Yeah. yeah, we have we have to wait until it's confirmed. Yeah, we true. have to. But but good news nonetheless. Good news is always gun. better than bad news. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, speaking of bad news, Whitney Houston yesterday passed away. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, uh very sad. Very yeah, sad. Yeah, news. really sad. Uh, she was just. Uh, I mean, for a period there in the late 80s, early 90s, was just like this dominating force. I mean, broke all sorts of records. I mean, as far as hit or number one singles, I mean, she passed Elvis and the Beatles and Diana Ross. And, and just for a minute, it just seemed like unstoppable, you know. And, uh, you know, obviously had issues with, you know, drugs and you know, her marriage to Bobby Brown and, and all those kinds of weird behavior. But yeah, it was, I was, I was really surprised uh, when I, when I saw that posted for the first time, I thought, man, no way, you know, that's, yeah. wow. I was really shocked. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking about her. I mean, uh, her debut album, Whitney Houston is in the book. So we will, yeah. we will definitely be getting to that and talking about her, but yeah, man, really sad, tragic. Um, yeah, very, very. Yeah. I, I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, details are coming out here and there. I mean, you know, just depending on, you know, how reliable some of the sources are. And, you know, some people are saying that it's she, well, she found, they found her in her hotel room and they're not sure if, if it was, it was drugs or if she, you know, they don't know what, what the deal is. You know, I mean, it's just, it's still kind of, kind of early, but yeah. Regardless, very, very sad. You know, apparently she was supposed to be at the Grammys, uh, which is today. And, you know, obviously they they're they're going to probably rework the show to, you know, pay tribute to her, which with some people are, are already talking about is, is maybe a little tacky. It's it's maybe too soon. But I mean, how do you not pay tribute to her? I mean, she was so, yeah. so much of an influence for the time where she was popular. And I mean, despite all the, the negative things you could say about Whitney Houston, I mean, you know, she had that voice. I mean, just this tremendous singing voice and, and was just such a, a force for a minute there where she was in movies and singing. I mean, and everything she did just was, it was just a massive success for a minute there. And then, you know, like a lot of people, you know, she just kind of, derailed her own career so to speak i guess but yeah. i don't know and then people are saying she, she she looked good she looked like you know she was going to be okay and you know they were talking about her going on to um simon cowell's uh, x-factor show possibly to replace uh uh what's her face that got fired paula abdul 
But now, I mean, all that's kind of, I guess, obviously not going to happen. But anyway, yeah, Whitney Houston passing it, very tragic. Very, very tragic. And uh, but I'm I'm glad you know that uh, we get to talk about one of her albums. Yeah, you know, uh, very good one too. And uh, obviously, you know, it won't get to that to that one for a while. You know, we're still only in the B's, so we have to, yeah. we have to get to the H's. For chipping that. away. <laughs> we're chipping away, man. There's a lot of B's. Yeah. We're, we're still only in like, uh, we only get up to like B-H in this one. So, yeah, there's a lot of B's. Um, but uh, this week, we're going to look at uh, uh, sort of a continue with our look at Hector Berlioz. Last week, we talked about his Symphony Fantastique. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about his opera, Les Troyens, which is French for the Trojans. Mm. Uh, so we're going to talk about that opera. Then we're going to talk about a musical, West Side Story, Leonard Bernstein and Stephen, Stephen Sondheim. Man, I cannot talk. Uh, Stephen Sondheim's musical, West Side Story. And then we're going to move on to some uh, original rock, Chuck Berry, and uh, talk about some of his, his tunes. And then we're going to dive into some uh, music from India. And we're going to look at an album called A Meeting by the River, a sort of collaboration between uh, blues slide guitarist Rai Cooter and Vishwa Mohan Bahat. Um, An interesting mix. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Uh, and then we're going to end with Indian uh, singing legend Asha Bosle. I, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her, her last name correctly or not, but um, yeah, Asha Bosle. So anyway, let's start with the Berlioz. And uh, this piece, you know, last week we talked about. Uh, like I said, Symphony Fantastique composed really early in his career and one of the pieces that established Berlioz as, you know, a major composer, a major force in in the uh, world of, of classical music of the 19th century. This is a piece that he wrote towards the end of his life. So we're kind of uh, looking at bookends here. Um, a young, you know, vibrant Berlioz with Symphony Fantastique and then an older seasoned uh, confident Berlioz um, for uh, this opera Les Troyens and this opera is gigantic so let me first say that it's it's huge uh, it's huge in conception it's huge in execution and uh, you know Berlioz was plagued by uh, you know, uh, during the last years of his life by trying to mount a production, you know, a full production of this opera and Berlioz never saw it. You know, um, he tried to engage the Paris opera, the the main opera company in Paris, you know, multiple times to mount this. And uh, he just, you know, he just couldn't get them interested in doing it. It was just the project was too big uh, a lot of people, a lot of orchestra directors were saying it's, you know, it's it's too big. It's it's not stageable. You know, it's it's just too big in, in conception. Yeah. And he, he finally convinced a smaller opera company in Paris to do the second half of it. They would only do the second half. 
And according to Berlioz himself, you know, it was, uh, as, as he put it, an imperfect uh, performance. He was very dissatisfied with it. He said the orchestra wasn't big enough. The singers weren't skilled enough. And, and uh, apparently, you know, th- this is what he saw. And a full production was not mounted until 21 years after Berlioz's death. So the, the full thing was not even seen or heard by anyone until then. And uh, not really revived until after World War II. Um, so this opera took a long, long time to uh, to get off the ground and start being actually performed. Um, so, you know, but I mean, that's, that's what comes with, it comes with the territory. You know, this is like, <clears throat> it's like someone writing, um, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy today and trying to get it done. Now, of course it was done, but you know, trying to get something of that scale produced and produced right and produced well, I mean, would be an unbelievably enormous undertaking costing, you know, if you put it in today's dollars, you know, costing hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, that's really what it would have taken yeah, to do it back then. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I was thinking, too, when I I, I first started reading about it, thinking he he just had something, a, a vision for an opera that for you know the, like you said most of the production companies they were like no way you know how do <laughs> we exactly. do this i mean there's there's no way i mean it would it would be a disaster trying to put this together and like you said uh a, a book like lord of the rings when it was first written trying to imagine putting a, a actual film together a live action film back then you know with the way people would have to put together like the, the scale and everything of it, it would have cost way too much, you know? Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. And then, and then in the modern age, I, like you said, you know, with the, with technology and everything advancing, it, it made it, you know, much more, more feasible, even, even though it was costly. I mean, I mean, it, it turned out, I mean, to me, it, it, it turned out really great. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I should say filmmakers, you know, are, are kind of looking at that now where they, they go back and look at, you know, certain books or, or even movies or ideas and they say, hey, you know, we could actually do this now with with, you know, the technology being better and and, and ideas. But but I, yeah, I guess, you know, he was he was just one of those guys that, you know, he he really saw something that that no one else could see, you know, and and, and for for opera, I mean, you know, like like the book is saying, I mean, the the story, I guess, of the fall of Troy is is almost perfect for an opera, you know, especially seeing as how almost everybody dies, you know, towards the end of it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it was just, you know, a story that was made for him, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this, this encompasses the, the, again, this real high drama of this period. Um, and, uh, yeah, like you said, where everybody dies, you know, uh, people are, are jilting each other in love and running away and stabbing themselves and, you know, committing mass suicide. And I mean, it's just like, you know, putting curses on each other and (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's perfect fodder, you know, for this. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I thought I'd, I'd read this one thing. Um, when, uh, he was, he, he was sort of approached to write an opera by, um, his friend, the Princess Wittgenstein, um, who lived in Weimar, Germany, 
And, you know, on Beethoven's model, this is what composers of the 19th century did, or at least the the successful ones is, uh, you know, they became friends with all these super rich uh, aristocrats, <laughs> basically, yeah. who, who liked the arts and, and then could fund this. And, you know, she's trying to convince Berlioz that because Berlioz is, is like talking to her and he's like, oh, you know, I. I really love this story and I've been kind of thinking about maybe doing an opera, but Oh no, I cannot. I, I, I suck and I can't do it. And it's too big and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, she's trying to convince him to do it. And so finally she says, and this is like an actual quote. She says, listen, uh, if you are shirking the inevitable difficulties of this piece, if you are so weak as to be afraid to brave everything for Dido and Cassandra, Never come to see me again, for I will not receive you. <laughs> you know, wow. like, who who talks like that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, apparently you did, you know, back in the 19th century. And so he ran off back to Paris and wrote this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know? Uh, so even, like, in, in this, uh, just the way people acted, you know, it was this just, just drama, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, Impassioned by... In passion for the arts, obviously, you know, she was. So uh, it's it's kind of funny, but I mean, you know, it, it took that that kind of mentality, you know, to to get something of this nature done, even though, you know, they neither one of them would really see like the full, you know, blown version of it. You know, it, it still was just a, a seed that, you know, wound up, you know, being planted so that it, it would, you know, you know, bear fruit that, you know, they would never taste, I guess, if right, that makes right, sense. Right. So, yeah, I, but, what, uh, what I want to know, though, is, you know, if she pushed him to do this thing and, you know, you know, obviously really hard and, you know, she should have ponied up the dough to, to have it produced. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least do that. But <laughs> um, but anyway, let's get into it. So uh, Berlioz Le Troyens and, and just to sort of you know, like all operas, we, we got to um, go through the story a little bit. So it's it's based on Virgil's Virgil's Aeneid about the fall of Troy, you know, um, where the Greeks roll up the, the Trojan horse and uh, the Trojans take it into their city walls and it's full of Greek soldiers and the Greek soldiers bust out and right and yeah. uh, take Troy. So, uh, yeah, so, so basically that's the story. Uh, that's the very beginning of the story. The the actually the fall of Troy is the very beginning, and then what happens is uh, there's a a woman, a Trojan woman named Cassandra. She's sort of like a, this sort of mystical uh, type uh, seer kind of uh, purse like character, and uh, before they bring in the horse, you know, she's running around telling everybody, oh, don't bring the horse in. There's there's something weird about it. I I know, I know, you know, don't do it. That you got to burn this horse, burn it outside the gates, and they all ignored her. And of course, you know she was right. And uh, so the first uh, track that we're going to listen to is from Act Two, and uh, it's basically what happens is in this part, in what's going on, you know, in this part, uh, this track that we're going to hear is the Greeks have taken Troy and they're sort of running around looting and pillaging and raping. And, um, Cassandra has, you know, her, a bit, this big group of women, um, and they're, you know, they're all playing, you know, liars and, and, uh, which are kind of like little harps. Mm-hmm. 
And Cassandra is trying to convince them that it would be better to commit suicide than to submit to, to the, the soldiers, to the Greeks. Yeah. And so what's going on here is there's a small group of women that are like, we don't want to die. You know, we'll, we'll go with the Greeks and Cassandra's uh, basically chiding them for being cowardly and, um, you know, for being afraid to die. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the, the small group of women are saying, you know, we'll be Greeks and Cassandra's, you know, saying, you know, you're, you're not Trojans, you know, go make the beds of your masters, get out, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so they leave the Trojans, I'm sorry, the Greeks show up, the soldiers, and they're saying, give us our treasure, our treasure, our treasure, the treasure, meaning, you know, the women mm-hmm. and uh, Cassandra and these other women kind of insult the Greek soldiers, and then they all commit mass suicide. Yeah, the stabbing. She stabs herself, and then the other ones all follow along right. with her. Right. Just pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah, dude, this whole thing is hardcore. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're going to hear. So uh, let's check it out. Right. So this is, and I'm going to attempt the French here, and I'm going to mangle it horribly. <laughs> uh, complice de sa gloire. Les Tresors, Les Tresors, from Act Two of Les Troyans. Oh, 
And we just heard complicit in his glory, the treasure, the treasure. That's the translation uh, from Act 2 of Le Troyens. And we're going to move on to basically the end of the opera. So what happens in the meantime here is that what the I guess the the hero, if you can call him that, of this opera, um, Aeneas, he's a Trojan soldier and he escapes Troy with a, like a small band of, of soldiers and they escape to Carthage, um, you know, in Northern Africa and uh, to the palace of it's ruled by uh, this queen Dido and uh, she's under threat from the Nubians. The Nubian king wants to, uh, marry her and sort of create this political alliance. She doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So um, they start being invaded by uh, the Nubians. And uh, Aeneas says, you know, who has been in disguise up to this point, he says, I am Aeneas from of Troy and we will fight by your side and, and drive off these Nubians. So that's what they do. They do. They, they drive off the Nubians. Aeneas fall and Dido fall in love with each other and... Um, you know, get it on in a cave and, you know, all this stuff. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, all the while we have these gods, the Greek, you know, Roman gods, um, constantly appearing to Aeneas, uh, telling him that, that he needs to take his Trojans, the, his remaining Trojans to Italy and start a new life there. It basically found that the, the implication is that he's going to take his Trojans to Italy and found Rome. That's kind of the, the, the implication. And they keep telling him to do this. And it's kind of like in Star Wars, you know, when Obi-Wan Kenobi keeps showing the sort of, I guess, what's supposed to be the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi keeps showing up to Luke and saying, you must go to Dagobah and, you know, train to be a Jedi. This basically is what happens. Yeah, you know, that's a good, good comparison, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, Obi-Wan or, or, you know, the gods keep showing up to this guy saying, what are you doing hanging out here with this chick in Carthage? You need to go to Italy. You need to go to Italy. Get going. You know, and they keep doing this. And so finally, you know, Aeneas is like, well, I can't deny the will of the gods. You know, we got to go. And Dido is like, no, you, you, if you really love me, you know, you'll defy the gods and stay here. And, but he can't, you know, he has to leave. So he slips out kind of, you know, in in the middle of the night, sort of. And, uh, she's of course enraged and, and just super pissed off. She puts a curse on his men. She sends her fleet after them to destroy them. And, uh, when basically she learns that they've gotten away and they've gotten to Italy, she can't live without him, and so she stabs herself yeah. <laughs> too. And so, uh, what we're going to listen to is her kind of lament towards the very, very end of the opera. You know, uh, she she's uh, lamenting the whole uh, situation, basically, and lamenting her love. You know, she'll never see him again, um, and also she's talking about how she will be avenged and she has this prophecy, right? This, she sees this prophecy of Hannibal, uh, the Carthaginian conqueror, Hannibal, who, who wouldn't, of course he didn't exist yet, but she sees this vision, you know, that's like their, their revenge, right? 
she sees this vision of Hannibal. So she talks about that. She, you know, and then she, she stabs herself, right? <laughs> so, you know, one interesting thing about this that we're going to hear is that, you know, it starts off with this descending line, this line, this very slow line that kind of descends uh, chromatically in the orchestra and the voice part descends. And this is a really old device for a lament. Um, a real famous one is from um, uh, an opera, probably, uh, you know, composed about uh, maybe 175 years before this-ish. Um, by Henry Purcell, uh, Dido and Aeneas, and you have the, a famous, you know, Dido's Lament from that with the, with the same kind of device on you know, this descending bass line. And um, anyway, you can find this all throughout operas. Um, I, just a kind of aside, but um, yeah, I don't know. It, what, what did you think of this one? Well, when you 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 brought up the the, the word lament, I mean that's that's the first thing that kind of came to my mind when I listened to it. It's, it, it's very lamentful. I, if, if that that is even a word, um, you know, the the whole mood of it, 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 it sounds kind of like that where, you know, it's, you know, this this lady and, and the the mood she's in and, and her, her mindset, like you said, where she's, you know, totally, you know, feeling like she she, she can't go on without the guy. And and, you know, let's let's just end this right here and. You know that that that's the feeling I got when I when I listened to this. So, um, you know, I and I, I I guess you know she she felt like you know what you can't go against the gods and, and he's got his thing that he has to do. So I, I'm I'm gonna do what I have to do. You know, um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of mournful sounding, lamentful, like you said that that that's definitely a word that came to mind with me when I first listened to it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, the music really encaps encapsulates this uh, high drama, high, high depressing sort of yeah um, moment in the opera. So yeah, mood, moody opera at its finest. That, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is definitely a time when um, they didn't feel pressured to have a happy ending. You know, no, um, this is a it's a horrible end. It's a tragic ending, you know, so. Um, let's check it out. This uh, track from Berlioz's Les Troyans from scene five. Uh, this is Pluton Semblet Maitre Propice. Thank you. 
And that was scene five from Berlioz Le Troyans. And uh, we're going to move on to West Side Story. So West Side Story of Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. Leonard Bernstein being the composer of the music. Stephen Sondheim being the lyricist of West Side Story. And uh, West Side Story, the original uh, original cast soundtrack released in 1957. And this was, a, you know, it's a huge hit, a huge cultural phenomenon back then. It was made into a movie in 1961. And uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you think of West Side Story? Oh, well, it's just it's a legendary uh, recording, um, musical Broadway, off-Broadway and musical and, and, and motion picture too. I mean, I, I would say uh, for myself, it was probably one of the first musicals I'd ever seen as far as like a, a what what was made into a movie. I think uh, when I when I initially saw it, I, I mean, I was really young, maybe like, I guess like five, four or five years old, you know, and um, liking the electric company. And, and knowing who Rita Moreno was, was exciting for me and, and seeing her in a different light, um, you know, and, and then learning who, who Leonard Bernstein and, and, and Stephen Sondheim, who they were, you know, it was it was, I guess, my first real exposure to to a popular musical as, as a child. And, uh, you know, very familiar with with so much of the music on here, you know, for for most of my life. And, and, and you know, like I said, seeing the the movie just just one of those those legendary uh, american you know kind of iconic recordings and and performances and uh you know i i i believe reading about it you know kind of it was was based on i guess you know shakespeare's romeo and juliet sort of like a modern day version of of how that that all went down so um yeah 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 this is also my um my introduction to uh, musical theater is my introduction also to Leonard Bernstein and, and Stephen Sondheim. And this was uh, Stephen Sondheim's uh, Broadway debut project. I mean, hmm. he was, he was apparently really young when they did this and he's gone on, you know, he's, he's Sondheim is still uh, living and uh, still producing musicals. And he has, he has had one of the, uh, biggest, most important Broadway careers of of really anyone. Yeah. Um. You know, and and he's written. Um. You know, he's gone on to write the music. You know, and the lyrics to some of the greatest musicals ever. Yeah. Um. You know, but uh. You know, he was at this point just writing the lyrics for West Side Story, and of course Leonard Bernstein was. Uh, did the music and Leonard Bernstein. I mean, the more I learn about Leonard Bernstein, uh, the more just in awe kind of, of Leonard Bernstein I am. I mean, this guy was really one of the geniuses and I really, I don't use that word lightly. I I personally think that that word is way overused in our uh, culture today. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really do think he was a bona fide genius of music. Um, and uh, you know, you know, not not only could he do something like this, write uh, popular 
uh, Broadway musical using, you know, popular styles at the time, like we're going to hear in the Mambo. But, uh, you know, he was a, a classical composer as well and wrote in every, you know, conceivable genre for that. He wrote an opera and orchestral music and chamber music and solo music and choral music. And um, yeah, he was he was an incredible conductor um, and he was also an incredible educator and speaker about music and did, you know, a ton of television and radio about uh, it, programs about music and lectured, yeah. you know, at, at universities. And um, I mean, the guy was just there thorough. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I mean, the, the guy was he, he was he was a genius of music, really. Um, and um, of course, he was a virtuoso pianist himself and all that stuff. So. Um, you know, West Side Story, um, <clears throat> this, uh, this musical, um, like I said, we're going to start with Mambo, uh, from, uh, the dance at the gym scene. And mm-hmm. I-, I think probably everybody knows the story of West Side Story, but I'm going to, you know, kind of go into it anyway, just in case, you know. Cause I'm sure yeah. there, there, there's going to be people out there that, that are not familiar with West side story and uh, West side story is essentially a retelling and a recasting of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. And uh, instead of these warring families, you know um, we have, you know, it's set in the 1950s in New York city and uh, we have these two rival teenage gangs, one, a, a Puerto Rican, and one kind of working class white kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so they're, it's in the, in the vein of Romeo and Juliet, you know, they're bitter enemies. And anyway, in this, one of these opening scenes that we're going to hear this, that where this mambo is played and they're at this dance, they're both at this dance, both groups. And Tony, who's part of the uh, white gang meets Maria who is uh, part of the Puerto Rican group and uh, they fall in love with each other and of course have to be secretive and all this stuff about it because they can't let anybody find out about it right it's for, yeah it's forbidden you know mm-hmm. it's forbidden love and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know th- this sort of goes on uh, this this secret love affair and and all the while you know there's there's the these turf wars basically between uh, the jets and the sharks the two gangs and um, what ends up happening is uh, Tony ends up killing her brother um, who her brother's name has escaped me. Um, the name of his character, Bernardo. Oh, and I, I Bernardo. Too. Shoot. <laughs> now I just I just remembered it's Bernardo. Her her brother Bernardo. So so Tony kills Bernardo. <coughs> excuse me. In a you know in a gang fight, and uh, she finds out about it, and you know they they plot that they're going to, you know, escape, you know, run away together and get away from everything and have a life and all this stuff. And then, um, as Tony is kind of, you know, going back to his place to, to, to try to sort of get his things together and run away with Maria, he has a run in with the, the gang, you know, the Puerto Rican gang. 
and uh, they kill him. They shoot him. And he dies and, you know, Maria finds him and, and sings, you know, kind of sings a, like a lament, almost kind of like the, the Le Troyans that we just heard, except she, she doesn't kill, you know, she doesn't stab herself. She lives, uh, which is a, you know, departure, obviously, from the Romeo and, Romeo Juliet, and Juliet story. Yeah. yeah. But um, she, you know, the, the basically the thing ends um, with her singing this lament over Tony's body, you know, as it's you know, as it's carried away and all this stuff. Um, which I think is another departure from musical theater. You know, in musical theater, it's usually about, you know, feeling good and up, happy, you usually, know? Usually, yeah. And usually, I, I not always, yeah, but usually. The the ending of, of, of West Side Story kind of reflected the times where there, there obviously were a lot of, of tensions between clashing cultures and you know the 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 ending probably kind of reflects the 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 feeling is that you know does it have to be like this you know i mean it really doesn't i mean you know can people just you know get along enough to where we're not killing each other you know especially people you know that you know two people loved each other and, and possibly could have been really happy but because of you know knuckleheads being knuckleheads you know it all falls apart you know and and, and I, I think that's the feeling that they're they're trying to purvey because i because i know in in the movie i mean that the end is very solemn where where everybody kind of marches off like you know we're all we all had a hand in this we're all guilty of of this guy's death i mean you know this didn't have to go this way you know right and uh right you know, and I, I I think that's, you know, like you said, because most musicals do not end like that. No, they're, they're usually like it's a grand finale and, and everybody's singing and their hands are in the air and uh, not not with West Side Story. No. Right. And yeah. So, yeah, this this uh, focused on uh, racial tension is basically, yeah. you know, and, and this is a, was a big deal in the late 50s because this was really when the civil rights movement started to really start to gain some steam, you know, and uh, of course it, it didn't really get rolling until the sixties, but it started rolling, you know, during this time. Yeah. And uh, so obviously, you know, that's a big, uh, uh, a big commentary, you know, in this, in this thing. And uh, so what we're going to listen to first is the Mambo from uh, the dance at the gym scene. And one thing that, one of the things, you know, that made this really stand out from other musical theater at the time was that it wasn't just songs. You know what I mean? There were, yeah. these, uh, you know, long stretches of instrumental music that usually was choreographed. So these huge, yeah. big dance scenes, you know, that mm-hmm. were, um, they were, you know, amazing. Yeah. Uh, Jerome Robbins, just legendary uh choreographed scenes uh especially where you like you said for this this scene in the gym there's so many people all kind of moving in 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 sync and in rhythm and 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 just some marvelous dancing and performing and uh yeah I, i think jerome robbins was a was a trendsetter you know where you know he he made it seem fun to to be up on stage and 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 dance and 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 move around and you know uh 
the the rhythm of this song you know definitely a latin influence rhythm i mean it was it was it was great i mean just you know like i said for the first time seeing a musical for 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 me on screen it was it was just a lot of fun i i west side story is one of those especially like the movie it, it could come on right now and i would watch it you know yeah, i just it was here. just that good to me yeah. you know yeah absolutely um let's just check this out this uh cool so this is Mambo from West Side Story. We just heard Mambo from West Side Story, and we're going to move on to Somewhere. So this is uh, from the very end or towards the very end of the play uh, uh, or of the musical. And this is basically right after Tony has killed Bernardo and someone, you know, rushes to tell Maria that her brother is dead. So she's filled with all these conflicted emotions. You know, she's uh you know panicked and and sad about the tragic death of her brother who she loved she's angry and furious at tony obviously for killing him but yeah. she also loves him right yeah so she's 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 full of all this a uh, conflicted emotion and um so somewhere is basically when tony shows up and she kind of, you know, bats him around for a bit and cries and all this stuff. And then finally sort of gives in and, and they kind of embrace each other. And this is her singing about how they should run away together somewhere, you know, and, and yeah. be, be together and have a life together and, you know, away from all of this stuff. Madness. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, just uh, uh, a great song. I mean, just one of one of those songs that 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 comes from a musical and then comes away from the musical so to speak uh you know it was just a great composition uh legendary composition that's been covered again and again and again 
by a variety of people. I mean, Barbra Streisand is like one of the first names that comes to my mind. You know, her version is very popular. Aretha Franklin did a, a really nice version with Quincy Jones. Oh, wow. I, mean, I didn't know that. So many people have covered somewhere. I mean, you know, it's it's just one of those. It, it, it really has become a standard, if you will, an American standard. And, um, you know, just, just one of those songs that, you know, can, you know, help a person you know, whether they're with someone else or, or by themselves even, um, of, of trying to kind of rise above their, their circumstances. Uh, a great song that, that kind of, you know, gives out that emotion, if you will, or that idea of, you know, again, like I said, it, does it have to be like this? I mean, you know, do we have to live like this? I mean, can we find something better, you know, you know, we'll we'll find a better way of living. I mean, even as as corny as some of the lyrics may sound to some people, I mean, you know, mo- most people want that. Most people want a a better way of living. You know, you know, especially nowadays with you know a variety of of issues you know, facing facing Americans. And, oh yeah. Um, you know, when I uh, I first started thinking about uh, songs from. Uh, from this collection, it was just one of those songs. I was like, we really have to talk about this song because it, like I said, it, it's been, it's been really, you know, one of those songs that, like I said, it had, it's, it's transcended the actual musical itself and, and kind of come away, you know, as like I said, like a, a very classic American type standard song that people have, have sang over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, Let's check this out. This is Somewhere from West Side Story. Yeah. 
And we just heard Somewhere from West Side Story. And we're going to move on to our next album, Chuck Berry, uh, The Anthology. And I think The Anthology was released in 2000. But, you know, this is these are recordings from uh, all through his career, really. Yeah, 50s um, on up. Yeah, 50s on up. And uh, we're going to start with his... You know, instantly recognizable Johnny Be Good. Um, uh, the this song, you know, it really established Barry as one of the first real electric guitar showmen in rock. And uh, he, I mean, he he really is is responsible for spawning, uh, you know, a whole rock guitar legacy. I, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that I don't know, spun until this day, really. Yeah, I, I think one thing that, that, that comes to mind with, with Chuck Berry is that, you know, like you said, his, his showmanship on stage and what he did, he was one of the first artists to really kind of bring you know, black and white audiences together, which at the time was, it could be, you know, a very volatile situation, which, you know, in, in his history later on, you'll kind of find out, uh, but trying to get him in trouble here and there, uh, with, uh, some of his adoring fans, so to speak. And, uh, he, he definitely had, had a stage presence, like nobody up to that point, you know, where he, he did this, you know, thing where he would, he would, he would dance on stage and do this duck walk and, and, and had a, a sound on his guitar. Like, you know, it, it had mixes of, of, of rock and roll where it was, it was rock and roll, but it was rhythm and blues. And, and sometimes it was kind of country and, you know, you know, he was just a, uh, like you said, like one of the first rock and roll showmen, virtuosos, if you will, you know, that that played guitar, you know, in in a new style, so to speak. Which I mean, a lot of people look back at that now as like you know, you know, everybody plays like that, but but not really before him, you know. I mean, there there weren't a lot of people that played like Chuck Berry before him. Uh, so to speak, or, or had a, a stage presence like him. Yeah. Um, he was an originator, man. I mean, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, uh, just, uh, so very, very, just a big influence on a variety of folks. I mean, you know, John Lennon, Elvis, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, so many people in rock and roll, I mean, you know, have, have Chuck Berry still as their idol. I mean, the, and the guy's, he still performs apparently, you know, you know, on up in, into age where he is now. I mean, still, still plays guitar, you know, still sings. I mean, you know, just a, just a very legendary figure in, in rock and roll where, you know, rock and roll is still in its, its fledgling state, so to speak. Um, and, um, you know, just, kind of was was like one of those guys that just everybody liked you know especially kids i mean like i said black and white you know just kind of cut across all all that all that you know color lines yeah. and barriers and and you know just was someone that everybody could appreciate 
Yeah, definitely. Well, let's let's check out the first track. Uh, we're going to hear Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. just heard Johnny be good. Um, and you know, the lyrics to that song, uh, and I think to a lot of his songs are very story driven. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and this is, this is kind of one of those, uh, you know, humble boy from small town who plays guitar becomes rock star songs. Yeah. You know, except this one, you know, with a lot of Chuck Berry's songs, have a very optimistic feel you know a lot of those songs you hear the the rock star the the um boy turned rock star songs usually have a tragic end to them you know mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm thinking of like for instance um uh da, 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 the, the one song by tom petty into the great wide open yes into the great wide open and then there's a like another one um Oh, 70s rock band. I'm drawing a, wow, total blank. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, but both those songs, you know, have ha, are sort of tragic, have a tragic bent. Mm-hmm. You know, that like. Oh, well, you know what? I know. I think I know what you're talking about. Um, it was a bad company song uh, called Shooting Star. Is that the one you're talking yes, about? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Bad company <laughs> shooting star. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, but this one is, you know, this is optimistic. Yeah, it's totally optimistic, and and it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a, just a great song and about a, you know, a guy from Louisiana who had a bunch of talent and went out and did something with it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So, sometimes I think this song might be somewhat uh autobiographical, even though you know Chuck Berry, I think, was from St. Louis. The, the the lyrics to this song apparently where where country boy was initially was colored boy when when he wrote it and they, oh, really? they changed it okay. yeah just to kind of you know make it 
to where it was it was a broader scope i guess but oh man that would have put a whole where if he was singing about himself you know that would have put a whole different spin on the song oh yeah just just changing that one word wow huh exactly because i mean you know you can relate country to a lot but but color is 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 definitely you know definitely more particular so uh you know i i think that was that was probably smart on his part to again like i said his appeal was was especially for a, a black artist and 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 when i say black you know chuck berry is a dark-skinned man you know for a lot of artists in that era i mean if you look at harry belafonte he was for a lot of people a lot more accepted in some ways and that that's not really to pit the two of them to against each other or anything but but Chuck Berry probably had to scrap a lot more for his in some ways because of the complexion of his skin. I mean, you know, whereas as light skinned people may have been more accepted as far as, you know, light skinned black people, I yeah, should say. Yeah. Um, Chuck Berry, I'm sure he I mean, I'm sure he faced a lot of racism as well as Harry Belafonte. But but Chuck Berry probably got got flagged for a lot of stuff. And I mean, oh, yeah. Chuck Berry, from what I understand, was not one of those guys that liked to compromise. I mean, you know, if you came at him with with racism, you know, you know, he would he would just come right back at you with, you know, I deserve this. You know, I don't care what you think about me. You know, I, I'm good. I'm 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 the best you'll see. You know, he he probably really didn't hold his tongue too much for people. I'm I'm sure he, you know, he was trying to, you know, keep his head on his shoulders but he just seemed like a guy that was that was very proud and 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 even you know bold you know into doing what he did so um but but anyway um yeah Johnny B Good just just one of those classic rock and roll songs one of the first rock and roll songs really to ever become like a a major major hit um back in the day in the in the 50s I should say yeah yeah yeah, and um, we're going to move on to his song, You Never Can Tell. I'm so glad you, you uh, picked this one. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of embarrassed about this a little bit. But, you know, my exposure to both of these songs were both through movies initially. Yeah. You know, yeah. Johnny Be Good, the first time I heard that was in Back to the Future. Okay. I, mean, I was a kid. You know, I was a kid yeah. at the time. And, but, um, and that's a great. By the way, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great scene in that movie. I mean, I, I love I love Steven Spielberg. You know, you know, not to get off track, but but the scene where where they play that song. I mean, he he kind of rocks out towards the end of that. I mean, in a different manner than what Chuck Berry did, but it was the same spirit of yeah, showmanship. Yeah. Where you know he he really got off, and 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 crowds just loved that. And I mean, obviously, you know, in that scene, you know, you know, you got the judges and Huey Lewis is one of the judges and he just kind of is like, you know, uh, no, don't think so. You know, but <laughs> I mean, any, anyway, go, going back to the song in, in, that we're talking about and, and the movie that that it was in, I mean, or, you well, you know, the movie, I mean, it was in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that's also a classic scene, which and I mean, you, you can you can go ahead and continue what you were saying. I'm sorry. Um, that, no, that was it. That was it. Just um, that that was the first time that I heard this song. You never can tell, you know, yeah, the scene from Pulp Fiction where uh, John Travolta's character takes Uma Thurman's character to this kind of 50s retro uh, 
restaurant, you know, theme restaurant or whatever in yeah. LA and they do that little dance scene, you know, on the, yeah. on the dance floor. Yeah. 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 That's a great scene too. Um, uh, I, I love both of those movies. Uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, the thing I, I, I love about that movie is that, that it, it's, it's not sequential where it, it parts of it are kind of broken up and, and, you know, shuffled and, you know, that can be really fun in a movie, but, but that particular scene where they dance, um, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> hello, this is my phone. I'll yeah. Just, you, yeah. You get the call. Uh, just, uh, I'll just let it go. Uh, okay. That's, that's, probably, that's, you probably know, that's, you don't want to talk to you anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, that's, <laughs> anyway. that's proof that, you know, we're doing this out of our homes and not in a studio, but anyway. yeah, yeah. We, we're, we're just, <laughs> we're just regular people. That's um, right. Anyway, um, that's a that's a legendary scene too because you know they they take that song and in its classic nature in that theme type restaurant and do these dances that you know are are old dances. I mean, you know the the way you know Uma's kind of you know doing what she does and, and John Travolta. I mean, he looks like Barbarino from Welcome Back, Carter. <laughs> And the dance that he does, and I was just like, man, that is all. I remember the first time I saw that, I just thought to myself, this is just a a great, great, great scene, and uh, and that song is just perfect for that scene. Um, it is, yeah. It it, it turns out uh, when I kind of read about that song, he he wrote that song in prison. Oh wow! And well, not in prison, I mean in jail, I should say. He was in jail. Uh, and he was apparently he was it was some sort of charges related to a sex crime. Um, what exactly that sex crime was, I, I don't know. Uh, but if you, you kind of read about Chuck Berry, his uh, his uh, exploits uh, that go on after the show, so to speak, and off stage are, are somewhat legendary, which I, I really won't <laughs> go into right now. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't going to go into that either, but I guess but we can anyway, probably just leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chuck Berry is he's 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 got some some different issues, and and that, there was a song on this on this anthology that I completely love. I, initially, I kind of wanted to play it, and I thought, you know, we're going to make somebody mad, uh, and it's it's my dingling. That's just one of those songs that that I will always love. I mean, it's it's one of those songs that you either really love it or you really right. hate it. <laughs> right. Uh, but the story behind that, that song, I mean, if you kind of listen to him singing, I mean, it, he, he did it in front of a a crowd in London. Like, uh, I think it was like mostly college kids. And I mean, if, if you listen to the lyrics, and I mean, I know we're not going to play that song, but I mean, he, he, he specifically talks about what it is. I mean, it, silver bells hanging on a string. And, and that's really all the song is about. And I mean, you can just kind of let your mind go from there if you want to and think of it as something else. Yeah, right. But, uh, you know, Chuck is Chuck is a very clever guy. Let's let's say that. Yeah. You know? and th- in this song, you know, we, we talked about it being kind of perfect for this scene in Pulp Fiction. And the scene in Pulp Fiction, you know, was I would describe it as like a, a really kind of cute and charming yeah. scene and really that's how this song is i mean if you listen to the lyrics they're really just kind of cute and charming i mean it's it's yeah. about this young couple who get married as teenagers and all the old folks are kind of like oh you know there's this implication that they're like they wished them well but there's implication implication that the old folks kind of think it's not going to last and yeah all this stuff and then you know they they go on and get a house for themselves and you know 
get it furnished as, as he says you know from a sears and roebuck sale and get yeah. a get a car and get a hi-fi that they you know blast music on and, and just have this kind of cozy cozy cute little life yeah yeah and, and that's that's yeah. another thing about him great storytelling in, in music and and that's what that's a great thing about rock and roll is when when you can tell a story like the the songs we talked about prior you know tom petty's into the great wide open and the, and the bad company song i mean this song is just a great story about you know two two kids that fall in love like you said and and, and just make a very simple life being together and being in love and uh you know i i imagine it's it's a lot of people you know, a lot of people can relate to that. And and that's a good thing about him and his music where he could write songs that that just simple people could relate to uh, that yeah. were really good rocking songs, you know. Yeah. And, and, and also, but, you know, his his portrayal of it, you know, of these teenagers and of their lives is like quintessentially American, like sort of Americana. Yeah. But yet he he refers to them by these French names and by, you know, Mademoiselle and, and all this kind of stuff. And it just kind of adds this little extra layer of charm to it. You mm-hmm. know, that mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Just um, just a, a special flair, you know, to him and, and, and his style of songwriting. Uh, you know, he he definitely could. Could take you places that you, you possibly may not have gone as far as like let's say if you were a northerner and you've never been down south or maybe if you're down south and never been up north so to speak and uh, the way he would write and and the details in his songs some of them seeming you know very you know simple details like you said in this song where he you know he has the 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 titles of, of where he calls you know the the guy and the girl you know mademoiselle and 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 Monsieur, so to speak, that's that was just him. That was just Chuck Berry. You know, he just very very clever in, in how he would put a song together. You know, and um, you know, almost even poetic at, at times. I I think, uh, yeah, and and how he told stories and then how he played the song. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So let's check this out. Um, our second track from Chuck Berry. You never can tell. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle And now the young monsieur and madame have rung the chapel bell C'est la vie, say the old folks, it goes to show you never can tell They furnished off an apartment with a two-room robot sale and ginger ale But when Pierre found work the little money coming worked out well C'est la vie, say the old folks The culture show you never can tell They had a high-five phone Oh boy, did they let it blast Seven hundred little records All rock, rhythm and jazz But when the sun went down the rapid tempo of the music fell C'est la vie, c'est the old folks It goes to show you never can tell They bought a souped-up chitney Was a cherry red 53 And drove it down to Orleans To celebrate the anniversary 
Leclerc was waiting to the lovely mademoiselle. C'est la vie, c'est the old folks. Both the show you never can tell. And we just heard You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry. And we're going to move on to, I'd say, probably one of the most interesting collaborations we've had on the show. Um, Rai Cooter and Vishwa Mohan Bahat. Um, so this is, you know, one of those examples of a, you know, East me- Eats Meets West collaboration, um, which, you know, w- was at this time, uh, I think, you know, it kind of really started uh, entering the popular consciousness, especially this collaboration with India, I would say in the 60s with the Beatles. I'd say that's where it really entered the popular consciousness where George Harrison especially um, made all these trips to India and started incorporating Indian music into their songs and collaborating with uh, Indian musicians like Ravi Shankar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this spawned a lot of Western musicians going over to India and uh, working with Indian musicians. Uh, one that, that comes to my mind that's one of my favorites is uh, a project called Shakti. Uh, jazz guitarist John McLaughlin and his uh, collaborations with Indian musicians, this group called Shakti. I, I just I love that group. And uh, this is one of them. So Rai Cooter is uh, kind of master of the uh, bottleneck slide blues guitar. Yeah. And uh, this guy, Vishwa Mohan Bahat, it's interesting how similar their styles are, but yet how, how different, you know, he, uh, Vishwa plays a kind of a custom instrument. It, it sort of looks like a guitar with eight strings, but the, he plays it on his lap, you know, sort of sitting down cross-legged, very much like a traditional classical Indian musician would if they were playing another traditional instrument like a sitar or tabla or something. Uh, and he plays it with a steel rod. So use it, use it very much like a bottleneck slide blues player would, um, but in a very, you know, Indian style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's amazing how well these styles complement each other. Um, and uh, this album, you know, I liken it in, in its uh, execution to uh, uh, Miles Davis kind of blue idea. So on, on kind of blue, you know, you get all these super skilled musicians together and the idea was to just do single takes of these songs, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to, to capture this spontaneity. And uh, that's what happens here. So they just kind of got together and uh, for lack of a better word, jammed. I mean, they, they don't, you know, they, they play together. They, they improvise and play through these songs um, and just sort of capture, you know, what they did. And it's this really cool and interesting fusion you know, of Western Mississippi Delta blues, basically, and uh, classical Indian music. So, yeah, what did you think of this? Yeah, I, I agree with, you know, pretty much everything you said. I mean, on, on the surface, I mean, it, it doesn't really seem like this would have been something that would have worked as well as it did. But in, in principle, like you said, when they sit and and just play together the the chemistry between the two of them it just it just worked you know because i know the first time i listened to it it just sounded like they they'd been playing together all their lives you know 
And um, I, I mean, I guess that could just reflect on, you know, their their genuine, you know, style chemistry or or they just got along. I, I don't know. But when I listen to it, I mean, it, it doesn't really sound like like something that they they were they forced together at all. It, it blends very well. They're, they're two individual styles. And I mean, I, I kind of knew Ry Cooter before from um, the music from that movie Crossroads that had uh, yeah. uh, Ralph Macchio in it. And, um, you know, I really wasn't really familiar uh, with uh, Vishwa, but I, I heard a lot of Indian music prior and and like I said, thinking about it, I was like, well, how are they going to do that? You know, and, and and just listening to it, you know, they they just work together so well as far as, you know, like you said, just sitting down and, and kind of just, you know, gradually letting, you know, what what's inside of them out, you know, to sort of improvise or or or, or you know, spontaneously kind of, you know, jam, like you said, and, you know. Really good, really surprisingly good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And incidentally, yeah, that was my introduction to to Ry Cooter was through Crossroads. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I, I I love that last guitar battle. I mean, oh yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, but um, anyway, um, uh, yeah. Incidentally, that last guitar battle in Crossroads, if you've never seen it, is essentially between Ry Cooter and Steve Vai. Uh huh. Um, is you know the two musicians doing that, uh, and I have to say that I think Ralph Macchio is the best fake actor guitar player I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> he, he's great. He's he, I mean, he's really. He's, That's a really good way of putting that. Because <laughs> I, I I totally agree. I mean, it really looks. I mean, he I, apparently he he can't play guitar. I mean, but when you see that movie, you don't really. I mean, I mean, unless you're like, I guess, a, a an in-tuned guitar player, which I, I am not. I mean, you, you don't really know that from yeah. watching him on screen. So. Well, I mean, I, you know, I can immediately tell, you know, because uh, I'm a guitar player, obviously. And, you know, I think Ralph Macchio really put in some super effort <laughs> in trying <laughs> to make it convincing. You know, I get so tired of, you know, seeing these actors on movies and TV shows and they're like, you know, for instance, they're in the track and the guitar track, you know, they're just strumming on one chord. Yeah. But, you know, maybe like their left hands, like moving up and down. I'm like, yeah, yeah. No, no and, dude, and, you're on the same chord, you know, just make, and, make some effort. And, and for saying that too, <laughs> I, I've seen actual musicians that, you know, allegedly played the song on record, but get on somebody's TV show. And, and you know, there's a track playing where it lip syncs and it sounds just like the song on record or radio. And they're up on stage and they're they're not even trying. And it's like you might as well just lay the guitar on the stage and stand there and fold your arms for what you're doing, you know. So I mean occasionally you'll see that where where somebody's just not anyway. Um but yeah, good good job by Ralph. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um let's listen to uh one of these tracks and we can kind of hear. Now these tracks are are pretty long. Um and that's just the deal with Indian music. If you listen to it, the, the traditional Indian classical music. Um, but these tracks are, you know, I, I'd say ranging between like maybe 10 and 15 minutes a piece. So mm-hmm. there, there's really only four tracks on this, on this album, on this whole album. 
Um, but it's it's just music that you can just kind of yeah, chill out to yeah, really. Definitely meditation type music, groove type music. Even I, you know, the the first track that I I listened to on the album, like you said, I looked at it and I was like, okay, this song's about ten and a half minutes. Wow, and, and you know, but it it flows so well, you know, especially if you're if you're kind of just in the moment where you don't really have you know much to do and you you want to relax. This is this is great music to chill out to. Like you said, re- really good meditation type music um you know good good for reading a book even you know for me if 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 i have something playing in the background that's somewhat instrumental and 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 smooth like this and i I can just open a book and just go you know where they you know they don't class with each other so to speak and um you know just uh an interesting collaboration in which I've seen some other things now, apparently where um, uh, Vishwise has collaborated with with other people too. I think like Bella Fleck and uh, Taj Mahal, and and now I'm I'm like really interested, you know, finding out about him about some of the other things he's done to see uh, to see what uh, those projects sound like as well. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd be into hearing that. I mean, after hearing this album, I'd really be into hearing anything the guy does. But yeah, um, let's check out this first track. Uh, this is a meeting by the river by Rai Cooter and Vishwa Mohan Bahat.
And we just heard a meeting by the river, and we're going to move on to Ganges River Delta Blues, um, like the perfect title for this collaboration. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I always found it interesting, the, the kind of similarities between Indian, the classical Indian music and jazz, where there's a lot of similarities between mm-hmm. them, you know, because in jazz music, uh, traditional jazz music, given how it's structured, you know, the, the piece will start with the head, what they call the head. And that's like, you know, a musical statement that they make at the beginning of the uh, of the piece. And then it moves into a section of improvisation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where different musicians are improvising over the chord changes. And then, you know, the song will usually, it'll go back to the head at the very end and, and that'll be the song. And that's kind of how these work you know it kind of starts with an idea a sort of stated musical idea and then moves into these long sections of improvisation and um and that's you know it's exactly what happens here um so uh yeah so this is just another one in kind of the same vein um but this one you know you get a lot of kind of blatant blues licks and i think it's really cool how uh vishwa kind of really follows in a lot of parts follows Ry Cooter's lead and you really hear all these kind of bluesy licks and stuff coming out of Vishwa's instrument you know uh, yeah. and, and you know which he's just doing by ear you know just just kind of following Ry Cooter's lead and um, yeah this is just so cool what do you think of this one yeah I, I agree just it's just nice the way they play off of each other in that sense, like you said, where, you know, they, you know, Raikuro plays something and Vishwa kind of gives his, his perception of, of what he played. And, and I mean, and it kind of goes back and forth like that, that, you know, that's not something that just everybody can do, you know, and for them to make a, an entire record where they, they just kind of, you know, get in the studio and, and, and improvise and, and make it really good is, is, is pretty special. I think they won a, I think they won a Grammy for this record. Uh, if I'm not mistaken for best world music album, which, uh, you know, is, is not something that, um, I, I really listen to a lot, I guess, which is what you call world music. But, uh, you know, I, I like this, I like this album quite a bit. Uh, you know, as, as far as the way it sounds and and the the way it was made, uh, it's pretty cool. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. So let's check this out. This last track from Ry Cooter and Vishwa Mohan Bahat. This is Ganges River Delta Blues.
we just heard Ganji's River Delta Blues, and we're going to move on to our last album of today, The Rough Guide to Asha Bosle. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but uh, Bosle. <laughs> um, yeah, the legendary Indian singer uh, who has recorded soundtracks for almost a thousand Bollywood movies in addition to uh, regular albums of all kinds of you know popular music and classical music and, and Indian music and folk songs. And according to the book, to Tom Moon, she has recorded, um, amassed almost 20,000 tracks. It's insane. It's, it's, man, it's really insane. So she started in, in the 50s, very young, you know, recording, uh, you know, these songs for these Bollywood musicals and really has just her, her, her career has just continued since then, uh, you know, to the, to the present. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't, what do you think of Asha? Uh, well, I, I, I started uh, listening to uh, this collection uh, back on, on Monday and I loved it. I mean, it was really hard even to pick maybe two songs from this particular collection that I, I thought stood out more than than the whole thing. I mean, just kind of kind of a, a a really unusual mix of well, her voice first of all, which is really beautiful. I mean, just just enchanting, sweet, beautiful voice that that she has, and and then the music in itself. You know, depending on you know who, who's producing and putting the music down. I mean, some of it is 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 really mystical sounding. Some of it almost seems to have like a, almost like a dub influence or a psychedelic influence. Uh, really, really cool music along with her vocal. And I mean, I mean, this is just obviously just a, a small sample of what she's about. But I mean, to to think that she's done, I mean, over the years as much as much music as she's done. And I, I'm sure they've dubbed her voice in, you know, thousands of movies where you, you keep hearing that same voice and, and, and you're like, you know, man, that lady, I mean, she looks like, you know, somebody I've never seen, but that voice is so familiar, you know? And, and I, I guess that, that kind of comes along with, you know, seeing on, you know, hundreds of thousands of movies, you know, where you may not actually be in the movie, but your voice is. Uh, but, but I love, I love the music on this collection. And it, it is, it's, it's a really cool mix of, of what I guess I would consider, you know, Indian music, you know, the, the type of percussion and, 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 and symphonic sounding uh, Indian type horns you would hear and, and the strings and, um, you know, just really beautiful stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a hallmark, hallmark of uh, the Bollywood sound, which is, again, like the previous album, this fusion of East meets West. So the Bollywood sound would be a fusion of like the Western orchestra that you would hear like, you know, in a Western musical or Western, you know, movie musical uh, fused with Indian instruments and an Indian style of singing. It's the, it's this really this fusion. And yeah. um, the first track that we're going to hear is called... Uh, 
Dachise Kahe. I think I'm, I don't know if I'm saying that right. But, <laughs> it's close enough. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it starts off with this sort of uh, beautiful kind of slidey vocalese kind of sound. You know, it, it kind of reminds me a lot of the Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan stuff, which I really like. Um, and uh, yeah, just beautiful. You, you can you can just hear, you know, her voice why she's been so successful and had such a great career. You know, it's interesting to hear this overview of her career on this one album because, you know, because she does so many movies and, and has her career has spanned so many decades. uh, The musical styles on a lot of the tracks are, are can be wildly different. Oh yeah. But her voice is always consistent. You yeah, know? right at the center of everything that's going on, definitely. Yeah, and it seems to fit into, you know, whatever style and whatever decade and what whatever the music is doing. Um mm-hmm. so uh this one is I would say a little more of what I would uh associate with a, a kind of traditional Bollywood sound on this track. And uh yeah, I don't know, let's check it out. All right, cool. Uh, this uh, track Da Chise Kahe from Asha Bosley.
And we just heard Dachise Kahe. And we're going to move on to Wrong Day. Um, and this track, I think, you know, from the sound of it, is a, a more recent track. Um, it's got, you know, a lot of electronic instruments, kind of uh, dance clubby sounding. It's funny, you know, in some of the sections, you know, because it has this uh, male kind of uh, backup vocalist. And so in some sections, you get this sort of boy band kind of feel from this track. Um, and in this track, especially, I can really see a Bollywood sort of mass choreographed dance scene that the the Bollywood movies are so famous for, you know, going on. Um, yeah. What did you think of this? Well, track? I when I was thinking about what you just said, it, it seems to me like when you when you listen to this track, she she seems like one of those people that, I mean, obviously India, they love her, and, and she's whatever is going gonna happen in, in music, she'll run right along with it, uh, and and she'll just she'll just constantly, you know, be sort of in the 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 know when it comes to. To musical, I guess, trends, but but still not go away from who she is, you know, and what she's about. Um, you know, they they may make things to kind of, you know, surround her. I mean, as far as like musical genres or styles or whatever, but you know, this track is is, is definitely different from some of the earlier stuff. But but like you said, it it still has you know her her stamp on it, so to speak, where her voice is is the most important thing on, on the track. And, um, that, that's a great, I guess, testament to, to who she is, where, you know, her, her style won't ever get old, I guess. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things, you know, to just kind of be, be dumb about who she was. I mean, cause I, I really didn't know, you know, much about her. Uh, there's a song apparently, um, called Brimful of Asha that that came out a few years ago I, I i i know that song but didn't know that song was about her um and uh it was just one of those songs that kind of came out you know kind of had a cool dance mix to it that that got played in clubs um I, I think the group is called corner store if i remember correctly and and like i said i had no idea the song was about her you know but you know she's just seems to be one of those people that has kind of you know, transcended generations of, you know, trends coming and going, you know. Um, so I, I, I'm i glad to have found out about her through this book, you know, for sure. Um, this track is, is not necessarily one of my, my favorite tracks. I, I It's good, but, you know, the the older stuff of hers is, is some of it's so very good and, and kind of trippy. Uh, but but this is a good tune nonetheless. I mean, you know, but just a just an interesting uh, discovery, so to speak, I guess, when uh, when you look at it overall. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's check this out. This uh, track, our last track from Asha Bosle, Wrong Day.
And we just heard Wrong Day from Asha Bosley. You know, it sounds like I'm saying wrong, like W-R-O-N-G-D-A-Y. <laughs> and I'm not saying that. I'm saying R-A-N-G-D-E. Yeah, so like wrong, wrong. Wrong. Wrong Day. Yeah. Um, Good enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. One of the other things I kind of liked about that, uh, I sort of thought was interesting uh, Western style thing that was incorporated in that is it has this almost tango like dance rhythm going on in it. Um, I don't know. Just thought it was interesting. Uh, I agree with you. You know that I, I kind of prefer the older stuff, but I thought it'd be kind of interesting to include a more recent track, you know, that kind of, they kind of span, you know, spanned her career a little bit. Oh yeah, um, but definitely. yeah. I mean, not, not to not not to. I wasn't trying to, you know, not not slamming slamming the song. Oh, or anything. Just, I know. I know. <laughs> she she's like I said she she seems to just have a a a, a talent that just it just it spans over generations. You know, I think that's kind of what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you were saying, man. Definitely. Um. So yeah, that does it. You know, for this week for episode number twenty of the 1000 recordings podcast man 20 episodes down wow i know man. it's cool it's going it's going good man <laughs> really <laughs> cool thank you I, i'm sorry I, just, I need a glass of water <laughs> um so if you would like to send us an email please send us an email at 1000 r uh, one sorry 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can look at the website at 1000rp.blogspot.com and there's information on the website about sponsoring the show uh, so please go check that out you can join us on twitter at twitter.com slash 1000rp and you can join us on facebook as well um, also we ask that if you get a few moments to go to itunes and leave us a rating and a review and uh, if it's a five-star review we'll read that on the show and we will appreciate it it will help us get out to more listeners. And uh, next week, what do we got coming for next week? Oh, really good mix of stuff next week. Uh, long live the Kane, uh, rapping and hip hop legend uh, Big Daddy Kane. Uh, that that'll be fun. Uh, uh, Big Star, which uh, was uh, Alex Chilton, uh, guitar legend, late Alex Chilton, uh, his band. Uh, this is something I, I I was familiar with him somewhat, but not with this particular recording. Um, uh, Bizet's Carmen, uh, legendary performance or opera uh, that's been uh, done and done again over and over. Uh, Bjork from Iceland, the little powerhouse that she is, Bjork, uh, her album Homogenic. Uh, that should be fun. Uh, yeah, lots of interesting Bjork stories, um, and uh, Los Angeles punk legends Black Flag uh, with their album Damaged. That'll be fun too. Uh, Henry Rollins. That's I love that guy. He. Uh, oh yeah, he's just one of those guys that just very uncompromising. You know, always has opinions about everything, whether you agree or, or not with him. He's, you know, he's definitely a or I guess I should say whether you like him or not. He he definitely has opinions on on this, that, or the other. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I saw care. him uh, years ago on one of his spoken word tours in Houston. Actually, I saw him at Numbers. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've seen him there too. What's funny is um, I, I kind of spontaneously, um, you know, not to put my business in the street, I, I, I had a sort of a run in with uh, my first wife and, and was just out and about and was driving, just kind of getting away from, you know, the, the situation. When I drove past numbers and saw on the, the marquee out there, Henry Rollins spoken word, I was like, oh, hell yeah. So <laughs> I just went and stopped in and and, and kind of walked in on the middle of him uh, talking. I, I'm trying to remember what he what he talked about that night. I I I think he was that night. He was talking about uh, what you call it, uh, a guy Steven Seagal, uh, <laughs> and and he he was like auditioning for a movie that he was going to be in with with Steven Seagal, and he he was he he was not very. Uh, 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 very hot on Mr. Seagal. I, I don't think he liked him all that. But anyway, uh, so we, we, you know, you might have been there too. I don't know. We may have been there and not even known. You know, the two of us were were there together because I, I wasn't there very long. I, I was there for a few minutes and then I just kind of got out. So. Well, this is. I mean, I, I probably when I saw him, it was probably ninety four ish or something. Uh, okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's. That's about the time it, it, it might have been. It was. It's been a very long time ago for me. I mean, okay. it was a very long time ago. So it could have been. Who knows? I mean, but I, I yeah, he's 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 an interesting interesting guy. I've seen his spoken word um, performances and, and definitely seen the Rollins band. I never I never saw Black Flag, uh, but I've seen the Rollins band. Man, uh, funny Rollins band story. Uh, the very first Lollapalooza that did not come here to Houston, but came to Dallas, Texas. I I got there and Ron's band was the first band that, that was playing. And, and, and you're walking up to the, the place where they're playing. I think it was a Starplex and you can hear them playing. I mean, they're, I mean, it just sounds like they're setting the stage on fire. I mean, they're, they're just going, you know, and you can hear Ron's just, you know, Oh, you know, just screaming. And, <laughs> right. And I'm just thinking, man, I can't wait. You know, I'm I'm just like trying to hurry and get to the stage. Well, you you get to the area where the seats and everything are, and it's completely empty. I mean, people are not even paying attention to what's going on. I mean, it's just like Rollins who? You know, where's where's Jane's addiction anyway? Um <laughs> But you wouldn't have known it by the way the band and especially Henry was performing i mean you you'd have thought they were at, at wembley stadium with the with the place packed i mean he he's he gave just this awesome performance despite the fact that it seemed like people were were kind of like not giving a flip and uh that's that's just oh, what that's that awesome. guy he's 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 just so indestructible it's like you're not gonna bring me down i don't i don't care i'm here i'm gonna give this show i'm gonna give my all and then I'm gonna drop the microphone on the stage and go get a towel, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh wow! Anyway. That sounds like a great, a great show to see. Yeah, um, yeah. Ron's so, man is crazy. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that more on the next show. You know, we talk cool. about Black Flag, and uh, yeah. So that's it. We will see everybody next week for episode number twenty-one. And uh, yeah, later. Great. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.